So what is a leader? What, what is leadership? Do you consider yourself a, a leader? Why? Or, or why not? We all kind of know the classic definition of leaders. A leader is like maybe the boss at work or maybe an elected official. It's someone who has a bit of power and authority over someone else. But does the position that you might hold make you a leader? My, my first taste of that classic sense of positional leadership was in grade 7 when I was elected the grade 7 representative on student council and that happened again in grade 8 and I was involved with student council uh, through to grade 9. I guess that makes me a bit of a geeky student council kid at the time. This was a, a junior high school in the Toronto area that served grades 7 to 9. And, and we wanted to grow up real fast and be like adults whether we were adults or not. Now this was back in the day when public schools had very strict dress codes. Girls could not wear pants or slacks, just dresses to school. And, and no, they, they couldn't be too short either. They had to be pretty well down to the knees. And uh, guys, uh, no jeans, uh, no shorts. I've never done all that well with rules that seem to lack purpose other than to just say no. And so in my role on student council, I, I made it my a mandate to work at changing the rules. And I, I won't go into all of what we did to try to do that, but we slowly began to crack things open. The first year, we succeeded at getting girls the right to wear slacks or pants under their dresses on cold winter days. But they had to come off as soon as they were in the school, just dresses on. But previously, I mean, if a girl walked into the school with pants on, she would be sent out. By the second year, we had succeeded in turning Fridays into a day of dress code freedom. Guys could wear jeans or shorts, and girls could wear pants, including jeans. The main opposition came from the vice principal, who saw all of this as leading to the breakdown of all order in the school, that all of this would lead to outright debauchery. He, he rallied a parents' group against us. We, we met with them and argued our position. I mean, the emotions were intense. You, you th would have thought that I was recommending crack for every kid in the school. No, we just wanted to wear jeans. I still do, right? Eventually, sometime in grade 9, the principal intervened and he overruled the vice principal and the dress code was lifted. It was an adrenaline-pumping victory, to be sure. And, and I believe it was the principal who instructed the vice principal to write a letter to my parents commending my leadership and influence in the school, something that I don't think he really wanted to do. And... He did it in a very creative way so that my parents would sense as he wrote what the principal had asked him to do, but he sort of expressed his own viewpoints at the same time. And my dad at the same time actually was supportive of the principal on all of this because he, he thought that the idea of blue jeans in school really was a sign of disrespect. And, and my dad was really big. Uh, I mean, uh, I come from generations of what we, you would always call working class families. And we moved to Toronto and uh, uh, he said to me, Dad, you, you don't wear jeans. You don't want to look like, you know, what the family did back in Nova Scotia. No, no nothing on any of you from Nova Scotia, but it's just my dad, okay? And, and it was another era. And, and yeah, he was just all concerned that jeans just meant that I was something that he didn't want me to be. And uh, anyways, um, he did, however, reading the letter, found the letter quite amusing. And I don't remember the exact wording of the letter, but I remember my dad reading it and saying to me, and excuse the language, it's not going to be too bad, but dad's sentiments were essentially, well, good for you, Doug. Parents, you're, apparently you're one badass leader leading your school to hell. Good for you. And uh, 
Then he smiled, and, uh, and to be honest, I was incredibly proud to be described that way. Now, my mother, who was raised in a private girls' Catholic convent for school, she never smiled at all of this at all. She remained horrified. She was pretty convinced that drugs were next and was on every now and then was checking my room out to see if she could find them. But anyways, that's sort of my first bit of classic positional leadership uh, experience. Later in the summer of grade 10, I was in a program where they were training us to be leaders, to be counselors at a summer camp, and you got evaluated throughout the program. And by the way, if you have a kid in high school, approaching high school, Christian summer camps that have leadership programs for kids are among those powerful tools out there for growing balanced young leaders. I was powerfully impacted by this kind of program and have led these programs. They are huge in the life of a high school kid. Hey, feel free to contact me about these kinds of programs in Alberta or across the country. Christian camps have got to be one of the best ways to grow young people into leaders. They're, they're incredibly powerful. So in the summer of grade 10, I was 16 in a leader in training program at a camp called Minioi. It's in Muskoka, two hours north of Toronto. And, and when I had my evaluation interview, the, the leader of the program said, Doug, you're, you're a bit of a teacher. You, you have some leadership ability. You're a bit of an influencer. Steward what you have well. And, and these are words of affirmation that I have never forgotten. And, and yeah, words of affirmation are powerful. We all need to be handing out authentic words of affirmation to the people in our lives, our kids. It's powerful. But I would add, they do need to be authentic. Sometimes in our culture, we just think we throw them out whether they're authentic or not. But yeah, that's just my vibe. They need to be real. And as part of my leadership journey, uh, that camp that I was working at actually got us to read a book on leadership. So one of the first books I read about leadership was a book called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Saunders. And, and I began to understand that as a follower of Jesus, leadership looks a little different than how a lot of people in the world see leadership. Guys like uh, John Maxwell and his 21's Irre Irrefutable Laws of Leadership began to impact me. A guy like Andy Stanley, who I've been using some of his stuff for this Come As You Are message series, uh, he has these really awesome leadership podcasts. And, and for over 20 years now, I've been going in one form or another to the Global Leadership Summit to learn what it means to lead well. And, and I'll admit, sometimes doing what you're taught in all of these leadership seminars and books, it's hard. Sometimes I don't measure up to what I know a, a real leader should look like. But what I want to do today is kind of share who I aspire to be as a leader and who we should all aspire to be. Now, this whole series, Come As You Are, it, it's been a call to follow Jesus. And in this church family, we are all at different stages and where we're at in following Jesus. I get that. That's awesome. You, you can come as you are, um, you know, wherever you're at. But the call for all of us is ultimately to follow Jesus. If Jesus is someone to be followed, he, he must be a leader worth following. Make sense? And you might not realize this, but Jesus has a lot to say about leadership, and he certainly modeled what leadership looks like. Now, before you tune out saying, hey, I'm not a leader, here's the truth about you. If you have any influence anywhere, you're a leader. The, the best uh, definition of leadership is one I picked up from John Maxwell. Leadership is influence. Nothing less, nothing more. Leadership is influence. That's it. That's all. Authority and position does not make you a leader. 
People in positions of authority, yes, they should exercise good leadership, but just because they have the position doesn't mean they're leaders. You say, Doug, no, no, I'm just a cog in an oil sands machine. I don't lead anyone. That's not true. Leadership is influence. And you can influence your boss. You can influence the people you work with. You can lead up. You can lead those around you. It's not just about leading people you have authority over. And if you're a parent, you're a leader. You lead kids. You lead your kids' friends. You lead their teachers because leadership is influence. Really, nothing more, nothing less. And if you're going to follow Jesus, one of the things he's going to do is to lead you to become a person of greater and greater influence in this world. A person of greater influence where you work, where you play golf or hockey or hunt or go to the gym. Uh, Jesus just wants to grow you in your leadership so that you lead well, so that you lead more like him. So what does that look like? And what does it, yeah, what does it look like to lead like Jesus? Well, we got a great story It's from the book that Mark wrote about Jesus. And it's a conversation between Jesus and his 12 apostles. And, you know, the 12 apostles are his 12 closest followers. They are on their way to Jerusalem and they're feeling the tension that things might not go so well in Jerusalem. They've been kind of hearing this from Jesus, but they're also trying to ignore it a little bit. And Jesus is saying to these guys that if you're ever in a position where you have some leadership influence, some leadership authority and all of these guys they're going to move into these kinds of positions in the church after the death of jesus well except for the one you know who betrayed jesus and committed suicide but the rest would take on positions of leadership of influence in the church i should tell you i've already told the guys in the men's tuesday night bible study where we're going through the book of mark right now that Mark was not one of Jesus's apostles. Mark was actually someone who knew the apostle Peter, Peter, who was an eyewitness to the last three years of Jesus's life. And we believe that what Mark wrote came from his conversations with the apostle Peter. The Tuesday night men's group is just ending Mark chapter two and going into Mark chapter three. And in these times when we get together, we have these culture moments where we look at a video or a meme or something like that. And We were going to do this last week, but we put it off to this week. Uh, A little look at a a quote from uh, Jordan Peterson. Now, uh, he's a real controversial guy in our culture. He's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto. And there's this meme uh, in in social media that people really love or people really hate. It seems to go extreme either ways. That has surfaced with all the debate that's out there right now on toxic masculinity. And, And the meme says, a harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control. And then he has some interesting thoughts about dangerous women as well, but we won't go into that. And in the Tuesday night group, we're just going to take a look at how does that statement compare to the life and teaching of Jesus? Is it a decent statement, a bad statement? And we're going to take a look at what it means as we look at Jesus and Mark. So um, we just want to talk about how that meme on Tuesday connects to the idea of leadership and influence and, you know, uh, does the Peterson statement have anything to say about how well, you know, how we lead well today? So, by the way, if you're a guy, that's just a little ad. We'd love to have you out on Tuesday at 7.30 at the modular beside the church here. And, and even if you haven't been to the, the group, these studies are just really easy to leap into. But let's get into the story as Mark writes it. It's in uh, chapter 10 of, of his gospel. Jesus and his apostles are headed to Jerusalem, and there's a crowd of people following behind Um, In Mark's gospel, this crowd that hangs out with Jesus, they're called disciples. 
Mark 10, verse 32, it'll be on the screen, or you can follow it on the YouVersion app, or uh, in the Bible if you have one with you. Let's read it. I'll read it. They were on their way to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to them. We're, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Okay, there's a pile of stuff happening right here. The crowds who are following Jesus, the, the disciples they're called, uh, they were feeling a bit tense about some tough teaching that Jesus had just given about how hard it was for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they weren't really getting what Jesus was saying. But still, these guys are actually hanging in there. Not like last week. If you were here last week, uh, there were a lot of people who started to unfollow Jesus. And now Jesus, in the midst of all of this, he takes his 12 apostles aside and he's repeating a message that you've heard him give if you've been around the last few weeks. Um, once again, Jesus is explaining that while their time together has been great, been, it's been awesome to be together as, as a group. It's, it's not going to stay great. Now, things are about to go bad quickly. Jesus is saying to the 12, hey, we've been on the top of the world with success and popularity, but all of that is about to change. If you're going to stay close to me, things are going to get really rocky. And Jesus lets them know that as they walk to Jerusalem, uh, what's going to happen to them in Jerusalem, it's going to be brutal. I will be mocked, beaten, flogged, and then killed. That, that's what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem, when we get to Jerusalem. I mean, this is kind of tough stuff to hear, right? And, and think about it, it's really kind of a tender moment as Jesus is trying to explain. Um, my days left on here is pretty short, and he's telling me when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, it's going to be bloody, it's going to be brutal. So what is the very next thing that happens? with incredible compassion, empathy, and relational intelligence. Yeah, not a chance. Look at what happens next. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Really? Jesus just poured out his heart about all this brutal stuff that's about to happen to him, and they like go, oh, Jesus, that's awful. Would you do us a favor? Would you, you do something for us? Like, what in the world are they thinking? But Jesus asks, what do you want? And these two, James and John, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. I mean, Jesus, if you're going to die, we just want to make uh, advanced reservations about our place in heaven, okay? That's what we're doing right now. Like, boys, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Jesus has just bared his soul to them about his quickly approaching death. And all they can think of is, hey, Jesus, we know you're going to be king someday. Sorry about the death thing. Uh, when you're king in glory, can we be close to you? Like when you are an ultimate authority, can we be your left hand and right hand guys and share some of that authority with you? Like can we have an office in the penthouse with a good view over Jerusalem? Maybe like a certain Alberta politician in the not-so-distant past, any of you remember? Jesus looks at the two of them and basically says, eh, you know, that's not really my place to do such a thing. And even though he did, you guys, you're, you're not up to it. But they push back on Jesus. Oh, yes, we're up to it. We can do it. And what I want you to notice here is, you know, Jesus didn't get angry at these guys. I think in a situation like that, I might just get a little bit ticked, you know. 
It would just be so discouraging to have poured your heart out to these guys and they gloss over what you're saying and are jockeying for positions of authority in heaven. I, I don't know about you, but I think I'd be pretty frustrated at that point. And then look what happens. You've got ten other guys, and they're listening to this crap, right? And so you'd think that they're going to come to Jesus' defense, wrap Jesus and John's knuckles for being so insensitive at such a tender time as this. Here's what happens. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Well, that sounds good, right? They, they should be indignant at these uh, guys. Their, their total lack of relational intelligence. But no, that's not it. Not at all. They're indignant because they want to be on the left and right-hand side too. They, they don't want to be left out. And it's like this big food fight breaks out, right? And yeah, there's this big fight over who gets what. And you, you got a laptop and you got a window and you got a cube. But I get a cube, no, no, no. And the next thing you know, the 12 are all fighting and arguing about who gets what when Jesus becomes king. So in the middle of this, Jesus calls a timeout. They stop. And maybe they sit under a sycamore tree and Jesus then spells out for them what leadership is all about in the kingdom of God, or what, Jesus, what, what leadership is about when we follow Jesus. And Jesus says, so when you are the leader, when you have authority of some sort, when you have influence that can impact the lives of others, if you're going to be my follower, this is what it needs to look like. Let's look at what Mark writes. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Jesus is saying, Hey, you know how classic positional leadership works in, in the world. You know that if you're a leader, you lord it over all the people who are under your authority. When, when you have power... You, you leverage that power for what's best for you. You leverage your influence for your good. You leverage your leadership to serve you. Not so for you. But that's what the apostles are doing right now. They're fighting to get into positions of authority, just like so many people in the world do, like so many politicians and business leaders do, and they just want to have authority over other people for their own personal good. And I kind of imagine Jesus doing a bit of a face plant, shakes his head and looks into the eyes of each of the 12 and says, no, no, not so with you. Guys, I see that you know how authority operates in the Roman world, uh, in, in the Jewish synagogue, how it operates in society. And I'm just telling you, it's not that way. Not so with you. And Jesus then just flips it upside down and says, if you're going to follow me, Right? Then you're going to need to lead like I lead. And here's how I lead. And here's how I expect you to lead. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The word great in this context uh, means be a leader. Great in this context means rule. It means exercise authority. And, and Jesus asked, do you want to be great? And the 12 were like, oh, yeah, 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 we want to be great. So do you want to exercise authority and influence, be the boss? Oh yeah, Jesus, I want to be the boss, as, as big of a boss as possible, uh, with as many people reporting to me as possible. I, I want to run it all. And Jesus goes, okay, great. If you want to be great, that, that's good. And you, you want to be leaders. Um, if you want to do that, uh, it's all good. Um, if you do it in the way that I do it. But to do it in the way I'm doing it, the way to become great is to become a servant. 
Well, what would, no, no, Jesus, I want to be a leader, not a servant. And Jesus is flipping it all upside down, saying, if you want to be great, if you want to be a leader, you become the slave of all. Slave and servants are not words that the apostles were associating with the word leader, right? Jesus flips it all around. Uh, let's talk uh, what Jesus doesn't mean first, because I often hear people saying that what Jesus is teaching here is flat leadership, that there's no hierarchy, no point person or key leader, that Jesus teaches only collaboration and consensus only. But then there are some of you here, right? And you lead sections, divisions, departments, so organizations, branches, franchises, and, and there's this structure to where you work. And, and what Jesus is saying is, um, not that he's against point leadership. He's not. And, and the reason we know that he's not against point leadership is because he appointed some leaders. Jesus is also not saying that you stand at the door all day and go, you first, you first, you first, you first, and I'm not ever going to get anything done because I'm serving everyone else. Jesus didn't do that. He actually got an extraordinary amount done, and so did his apostles. What, what Jesus is saying uh, what Jesus is teaching is that when we have authority, when we have fluence, when we have power, and, and I grabbed this statement from Andy Stanley, we are to leverage our authority for the benefit of others, for the benefit of those who are under our authority. You see, if you're going to lead like Jesus, you're going to have to learn not to lord it over people, but to serve people. We are to leverage our authority for the sake of those under our authority, whether at home, at work, in the city, where we play, in the church. And the truth is, I mean, if you've ever seen this done, right, you, you know it creates a much better atmosphere, a, a much stronger culture. I mean, here's how it works. And you, you know this to be true, really, that if you believe your boss is there for you, you want to be there for your boss and the people you work with. You get what I'm saying. If someone is in a position of power and that person is for you, you naturally easily become for them and for the cause that they're calling you to work for. People work for leaders much more than they work for a company. Same in sports, same in churches. When the boss or leader is just in it for himself and lords it over everyone, it, it destroys the culture where you work. And you end up having to watch your back because no one else will. And, and that's not a fun place to work, but it sure happens a lot. Years ago, I, I heard a guy by the name of Jim Collins speak at the Global Leadership Summit. He had just written a book called Good to Great. Collins, who was not a follower of Jesus, but an incredibly brilliant guy, did all this research into what kind of leader made for really great companies and social profit organizations and churches. When he went looking for what uh, great leaders have in common, he, he thought he would find a very charismatic leader who inspired them and kept them spellbound by the vision. What he found was quite different. The main quality, the one thing that every great leader had in common was not charisma, it was humility. And, and he went on to say that in great leaders, you, you find this paradoxical mix between personal humility and what he calls professional will. That is, great leaders love to get stuff done. I mean, they are strong people, but there is a humility to be found as they exercise their strong drive. So great leaders are driven, but humble. And as he described this paradox to all of us church leaders sitting in, the, in this uh, 
in this conference um, as he described this paradox, uh, strong and humble at the same time, the lights went on. And we all went, yeah, that's just like Jesus, right? You know, Jesus was not a harmless guy. At one time, he grabbed a whip, uh, overturned tables, and drove money changers out of the temple. He was a strong, driven man, a dangerous man, really, who in humility kept his strength under control. Jesus is humble, but driven. And Jesus, the ultimate leader, came to serve you and me. He wants our best. And and there was no stopping him as he pursued his mission to, to give his life for you and me. Humble, but driven. Committed to a cause that would change your life and my life for the better. Driven to make your life and my life better. That's the mission of Jesus. And we see this so clearly at the end of this little conversation between Jesus and his apostles. Mark tacks on this little uh, extra to take all our excuses away. It's a, it's a picture of Jesus who's driven by a mission but humble. And he quotes Jesus as saying, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Let me stop there first. You, you get what he's saying. If you're a Jesus follower and you still think it's all about you, then you have rated yourself above Jesus. I mean, are you more important than Jesus? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He's God. He did not come to be served, but to serve. If you're going to lead like Jesus, you've got to be willing to serve people with no benefit and, and no thought of how it serves you. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the call is to lead like Jesus. The call is to figure out how to leverage your authority, your influence for the sake and the benefit of people who are under your authority, who who are in your span of care and influence. You'll be better off if you lead that way, and they will be better off. I mean, everyone wins if you choose to lead like Jesus. And yeah... As I've been working on this message, I've been really reflective about what it all means for me personally. I mean, studying this stuff for me is so compelling and, and convicting at the same time. You know, I, I, I pastor this church. Oh, what an awesome family I get to serve. Often there are up to 300, sometimes more here on a Sunday, 650 of you who attend regularly. We, we actually have a contact list of 1,900 people who've been part of our many programs throughout the year, things like bus tours and day camps and on and on. I work directly with a staff team of seven, and through those seven, uh, our staff team work with volunteers all over. There are about 140 of you. And, and what does leadership look like with those kinds of numbers? And, and here's what I'm actually personally wrestling with. You know, as I look at myself and evaluate, I go, my challenge is I get so busy with all my stuff and all of the stuff that makes church happen that sometimes I don't pause long enough to say to someone else, how can I help you? How can I loan a bit of me to you so that you can do better? If I'm going to lead like Jesus, I have to keep working at that. Sure, I I can't do that for everyone, but I can do it for some. And I need to do it more because this is what I see Jesus doing with the 12 in particular and then with others. Okay, not everyone, but Jesus didn't heal everyone, but he did heal. He did serve. That's what good leaders do. They serve others. So here's my question for you as we wrap up. What would it be like for you to leverage your authority or your influence, however great or small it is? What would it look like to leverage your authority for the benefit of the people who are some way under you or in your sphere of influence?
Let's pray that Jesus would help us lead the way that he leads. Okay, let's do that. Let's just pray together. Father God, thank you for the way that you lead for our benefit, that you lead by serving us. I mean, wow. That you, Lord God, would serve us and make a way for us to experience flourishing lives now and forever. And thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who as a dangerous man, even used a whip at one point to drive out the money changers, but who voluntarily restrained his strength and gave his life to pay for our sin. Help us to get this right, that, that we would be people who lead like Jesus. Help us to reflect this paradoxical mix of strength and humility in our homes, where we work, wherever we just do life. Help us to live and love more like Jesus as you fill us with your spirit uh, who will empower us to live like Jesus. God, Give us courage. Give us humility to make our homes, this city, our world, a better place to live where more and more people experience the life-transforming love of Jesus for themselves. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.